please open the Word of God to 1 Peter. We stepped away for the summer, and we were in the Psalms, and that was a delight. But I'm excited to return to 1 Peter. In the spring, we covered the first 12 verses of this book, and we saw then the introduction. And so, since it has been a few months, let's just remember where we've come so far. Peter is writing to Christians in the first century who are encountering increasing hostility for faith in Jesus Christ. And we can relate to this on the course we're headed in our own culture today in this country. And Peter is, instead of giving a pity party, instead of telling these believers, you know, maybe you should reconsider following Jesus, basically the gist of his first 12 verses to them is that your salvation is worth it. Your salvation is worth your excitement. And we saw that especially in verses 10 through 12. And so I want you now to consider the first word. Notice the first word of verse 13, our text today, therefore. Therefore. This is signaling a clear transition with everything Peter's just said before. What has he said before? Verse 3, because God has made you alive. Because he has caused you to be born again according to his great mercy. Because you now then have a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. Because you have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. And because God is keeping you by his power. Because even the most fiery trials and temptations in your life cannot possibly diminish the glory of what Christ has laid up in store for you to be revealed at his coming. And because the prophets long to know, they long to know, and angels, get this, angels, he said, long to experience what it is, this great salvation that God has given to you. Therefore, because of all this, because of this great salvation, Peter's now going to lay out God's calling for our lives. Because God has saved us with so great a salvation, there's a responsibility that we have. And there's actually no imperatives that we saw in the first 12 verses. There were no commands Peter's given, but now we're going to see in our text, there's many commands. Many commands to follow because of the great salvation God has given us. So this is where we see the body of Peter's letter beginning. The body of his exhortation begins right here in verse 13 and will carry through to the rest of his letter. So let's stand out of respect for the reading of what it is we hold in our hands, the word of God, and let's read our text, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's seek our Lord's help in prayer. Holy Father, our Lord God, the one who is holy above and beyond all things. We come to you not in our own merits, not in our own name, but we approach you in the merits and the name of your son Jesus. We pray that you would once again be merciful to us. We are a needy people. We are a hungry people. Lord, we need to be fed 
from your truth this morning. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would communicate the words of the text that we're examining and would burn it deep into our hearts. Lord, we are a people that needs to be made holy. We are far from holy. Lord, we live in a very unholy, very ungodly world. And I pray that today you would convict us, that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit to sanctify us, draw us out of sin and make us more like Christ. I pray if there be anybody listening here who has not come into a personal, saving, eternal relationship with you through your Son, we pray that today would be a day of great salvation for them. Lord, speak to all of us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine with me what it would be like to live in a great colony of slaves. You are serving under a cruel dictatorship where you and your family are simply the property of the state. And every day before sunrise, you have to report to the officers who oversee your work. And after roll call, you and your fellow slaves begin doing what it is you do every day and and what you are destined to do every day of your life. And that is morning, noon, and night, you are making and carrying and laying bricks. Bricks. Seven days a week, day in, day out, from sunrise to sunset. Oh, the officers occasionally give you a break just to keep you healthy enough to serve and work another day. If you take a break, if you begin to slack off, there's always a taskmaster standing by to whip you into action. And so you're watching as you're working under these back-breaking loads. You're watching friends you love that are being mercilessly beaten because they can't keep up. You see perhaps people trying to escape and they are executed. And your days are spent in misery and fear. Your evenings are spent in longing. Longing for freedom. Longing for a life you never had. Longing for some better existence. Some reprieve even. And then one day, a prophet shows up who tells you that you, your family, and all your fellow slaves are going to be set free. Because God has heard your cry and he's going to deliver you by miracles. Now as exciting as that would be, it's nothing compared to what follows. Because miracle after miracle after miracle happens and you see the hand of Almighty God in such a way that you, your family, and all your fellow slaves walk out free and start a new life. That's exciting. And that is exactly what God's people experienced in the Old Testament. God delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. He brought them out by his mighty arm and gave them freedom, gave them a new life. And Peter sees no less wonder between Israel's deliverance out of slavery in Egypt and your deliverance, if you're in Jesus Christ, out of sin. He's saying there is no less wonder, it is no less a miracle that a sinner like us could be redeemed by Almighty God and given this great salvation. That's why Peter spent the last 12 verses describing our great salvation. And Christian, your salvation is worth your excitement. It's worth getting excited about what Jesus Christ has done for you. So notice Peter begins our text then with this very important word, therefore. Therefore. Everything we're going to look at today in verses 13 through 16 logically follows because of the great salvation God has given to you. 
After God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Sinai. Remember what happened there? God made a covenant with them. And he gave them there a new calling in life. To be a holy people to live holy for him. And once we are redeemed from slavery out of sin, God has made no less a serious covenant with us. And we are given a new calling in life as well. It's no less a great calling, no less a holy calling. A new life means a new calling. That's the point of this text, especially signaled by this word, therefore. A new life means a new calling. And if you've received this great salvation like Israel of old, then you have a new calling in life. A calling to be like God, to serve him. How can you pursue this calling? Well, Peter gives us three mandates which are essential for pursuing this new calling. First, our first mandate for pursuing this new calling is fix your hope. Fix your hope where it belongs. I definitely prefer the ESV translation in verse 13 because I believe it conveys better what is Peter's main point. I'll I'll read the ESV translation in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. There's the main idea. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's main idea is found in the main verb, set your hope. Fix your hope. That's the real command in the sentence. Preparing your minds, being sober in spirit, those are actually participles. And so if you were with us over the summer for our course in hermeneutics, this is a little bone to you. You can appreciate some of this. But Peter's not listing here three commands with equal emphasis, as it might appear in the New American Standard. Peter's real command is, fix your hope on your salvation, your great salvation to be revealed when Christ comes, and you can do that by two things. He prescribes two ways you must fix your hope. First, you must fix your hope by preparing your mind for action. Fix your hope by preparing your mind for action. Now, the Greek text literally reads, because I know you're interested, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind, and you're thinking, what on earth does that mean? Well, most modern translations, like the one before us, just cut to the chase. It just gives us the big idea. It just says, prepare your mind for action, because that's the main idea. But it's worth knowing why Peter said what he did the way he did. You see, in the time that Peter lived in the Middle East, and even many people today still in the Middle East, they wore robes. They wear robes. And so when someone would be needing to prepare for work or for uh, running, they were going to run somewhere, or you were going to prepare to fight, you would need to reach down and pull up that robe from between your legs, and you would tuck it into your belt. And this was called girding up your loins. And you would do that because you were preparing for some action. I don't know why they didn't just invent pants. You know, that would have been a whole lot easier. So thank God for that. But, you know, the idea is prepare your minds. Get ready for action. And John Calvin has mentioned that there's a double metaphor here in it. It's worth pointing out. Peter doubles the metaphor because he's speaking of both girding up the loins. That's preparation, a metaphor for preparing. While he's also speaking of the loins of your mind. Well, now this is a metaphor of preparing your thinking. Christian, it is essential in today's culture that you prepare your mind for action. Here were churches in the first century that Peter's writing to. They were in 
encountering increasing hostility for faith in Christ. They were destined to encounter a whole lot more. And believer, if you could just know what the future holds for your life, the kind of trials, the kind of pressures, the kind of temptation, and yes, perhaps even persecution, all that persecution that is in store for you on account of your faith in Jesus, you might just get a whole lot more serious about preparing your mind, about preparing for action. Peter says, get ready for what is to come. And brothers and sisters, there was never a more critical time in the history of our nation than for believers in churches like this all around the world to get serious. This isn't a party. This isn't a time to come to a concert. It's time to, time to slack off. This is a time to train. This is a time to repair for what God is calling us to endure for the sake of Christ. We aren't headed for a picnic. The true church of Christ in this country, the remnant of God's elect, is a people of which God would say... All who are godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I don't know what exactly that's going to look like for us, but I can tell you there's a reason that there's increasing hostility for being faithful to Jesus. It can be counterintuitive to prepare for war when you're living in a time of peace, sure. But Peter says, get ready. Get ready for action, prepare. And you can start doing that right now by not checking out and simply staying with me here and engaging your mind. To learn about God and his truth. So secondly, we must fix our hope by, on our coming salvation by keeping sober in spirit. Prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. And the word here, to keep sober, means to be self-controlled. The idea of soberness is the image of not being drunk. It's staying uh, sober, prohibiting drunkenness. Surely you've been to parts of the city where you've seen someone very sadly, sprawled out on a side street, a sidewalk somewhere. Didn't know who they were. Didn't know where they were. Didn't know what they were doing or what they were supposed to be doing in life. They were drunk. They were under the influence of some intoxicating drugs. And we look at that. We pass by and we think, how sad. How sad. Maybe how pathetic. Maybe we even judge such an individual for being in such a sad state. And it may be easy for us to condemn drunkenness and intoxication with some kind of narcotics and drugs because we have no problem seeing the sort of harm which such intoxicating, mind-bending drugs cause. But what about this, brothers and sisters? What about simply lacking soberness in spirit? Because that's exactly what Peter's talking about. Soberness in spirit. Are you sober in spirit? What are we to make of a Christian who is so under the world's influence, he's so, he or she is so governed by what people think and what the world wants and the pressures of sin and all that, that he or she no longer considers what's important for the Christian life. We're not really sure who we are, who Christ has called us to be, what we're supposed to be doing in life. That's sad. That's a tragedy. Peter will go on to describe this sobriety of spirit twice more in his same letter. So we know he considers this important. In 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, Be of a sober spirit because the end of all things is near. That's a good reason. 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, Be sober, be of a sober spirit because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, even you. That's a good reason to be sober in spirit. We have good reason. To keep alert. Beloved, the scriptures teach, whether you realize it or not, if you're on the side of Christ, you're at war. We're at war. 
And this demands all vigilance. We need to exercise and sustain a focus in life. By preparing your mind for action and by keeping sober in spirit, you will be able then to fix your hope where it needs to be. And so this brings us to the center of Peter's first mandate. Fix your hope, he says. He says here at the end of verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, concerning this word hope, just remember from our study of verse 3, this is not like the way we typically use hope maybe today in our own vernacular, right? I hope this would happen. Like, I wish this would happen. This isn't hope in the sense of wishful thinking. This is a confident expectation that carries the Christian through his or her troubles. This is what keeps God's people going. This is the confidence that carries believers through tribulation. That's hope. Your hope is what carries you through the day. It's what keeps you sane when sanity would leave you. Hope is what keeps you going when the going gets tough. So where is your hope this morning? What is driving you? What is moving you? What is motivating you? Is it retirement? Is it that weekend reprieve? You just live from weekend to weekend? Is, is it a raise? Is it some successful promotion in your career? Is it your family, your family's health, your family's well-being? Where have you fixed your hope? Peter says, set your hope fully on. The grace that will be brought to you. The Christian is commanded to fix hope on the revelation of Christ. The coming of Christ. Now we, of course it's the grace of Christ here, but we know this. There's a sense in which God's grace has already come. The Bible tells us that. I'm thinking of Titus 2.11 that says the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. Aren't you thankful for that? We know God's grace has come. God's grace has appeared. But Peter here is anticipating a future grace, a grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul would go on to describe in Titus 2.13 where he says, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The return of Christ is the Christian's blessed hope. Is that, is that your blessed hope? You might put it this way. To fix your hope fully on Christ's return would mean that you are betting all on Jesus coming back. You are betting all on Jesus coming. Now, I'm not encouraging anyone here to uh, bet... But I'm simply saying, although we're unable to presently see Christ, and although we're not able to know exactly when he will return, if we are going to fix our hope fully, don't miss that, fully on Jesus' return, that would be like saying, I'm betting everything I've got on Jesus coming back. I'm betting everything on the fact that it will be worth it all when I see Christ. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what they say about me. I don't care what I miss out on, on all this world has to offer for the sake of Christ, because when he comes back, it will be worth it. That is fixing your hope on the return of Jesus. Now, you can tell a lot about a person by whether or not he or she is, is genuinely excited about the return of Christ. Are you excited about the thought of seeing Jesus? I remember my parents 
had invited some good friends over, and they did this sort of thing a lot, so this was nothing unusual. But on this particular occasion, it was very busy, and so for a number of reasons, uh, you know, we all forgot about it. That is, until they showed up on the front porch. And I answered the door. And you know what that's like when that awkward feeling inside you're just hoping doesn't show on your face? Well, I told my younger brother, you know, he got the he went up to get my parents, and uh, very awkward situation. We knew the house was a wreck. We knew that whatever was planned for dinner certainly hadn't reckoned on company. We're typically thrilled to see people we love. Unless, uh, the exception to the rule is that we just haven't prepared. We're just not ready. It's just not a good time. We're just caught off guard. So what about the return of Christ? Sure, you're excited about seeing Jesus. What Christian isn't? Oh, we're all so thrilled about seeing about the return of Jesus. But are you ready? I mean, now. Are you ready for seeing the Lord? Would you be thrilled about seeing him at this moment? Or does this make you nervous? Are there some closets in your life that you would rather clean out first? Would you have to make some preparations? Peter's saying your hope ought to be fixed fully on Jesus' return. Are you so preparing your mind and keeping sober in spirit? Have you so fixed your hope on Christ's return that you're ready? And you're ready to endure all for his sake. Actually, any hope that's not fixed fully on Jesus appearing won't be enough to sustain you. It won't be enough to sustain you for what is to come. You know that when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he brought them through the wilderness. He tested them for 40 years. And after that, he brought them into Canaan where they had to fight many battles. Christian, God is calling you to pursue something greater, something eternal, something spiritual, but you cannot possibly fulfill the calling that God has on your life unless you fix your hope fully. Fix your hope fully. Where is your hope? Do you have this hope in you? Do you live by this hope? This is the first mandate for pursuing your new calling in life. Fix your hope where it belongs. The second mandate for pursuing your new calling is Forsake former habits. Forsake former habits. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Peter's concerned that these Christians not revert back to their former habits, their former way of life, the way they lived before they were redeemed from sin. So verse 14 provides two reasons then to forsake former habits of life without God. First, forsake these former habits you have, these habits of sin, because you have a new identity as obedient children of God. Peter addresses his readers as obedient children. He's identifying their present condition in contrast to their former condition. They weren't always God's obedient children, but now they are. That's very plain in verses 1 through 12. Recall back in verse 3, Peter has stated that his, his Christian readers have been born again. They have been born again to new life where God is their father. Actually, in verse 17, Peter will again refer to God as their father. And scripture teaches anyone, I don't care who you are, anyone 
who will receive the Son of God. Even as many as believe on his name, God causes them to be his very children. He adopts them into his family. He calls them his own. That's beautiful. God's redeemed. All of them are his children. And of course, when the Bible speaks of God's children, we typically think of that in terms of it's emphasizing God's commitment to and God's affection toward his people. But I believe what Peter really has in mind here, more than anything, is our obligation to God. We, as his children, are obligated to obey him. I know you're excited about that. We as God's children, are obligated to obey our Lord. You know the scriptures teach, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents. I'm sure just about every Jew and Gentile living in the first century, at least, that would have heard this said, of course. Even if they didn't believe the Bible, they would say, wow, well, if you live under his roof, if you eat his food, if he provides you his protection, obey your father. What are you thinking? And if God has given you so great a salvation, who do you think you are? God has adopted you into his family. You receive all his blessings and benefits. Who do you think you are? Peter says, as obedient children. He calls them obedient children because he's, he's, he's saying you don't have any grounds for not obeying God. So there's a tremendous obligation that comes with this fact. That we have been made sons and daughters of God. Does that pull on us at all? Do we feel that weight of that? Peter wants us to forsake former habits because we have a new identity as obedient children of God, but also forsake former habits because your former life was lived according to ignorance. The word conformed that Peter uses only occurs elsewhere once in the New Testament. It's in Romans 12 2. He says, do not be conformed. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. When you press something soft like clay into a mold, it takes the shape of the mold. That's conforming. And the world has a mold. Have you noticed? This world has a mold. There are people all over the world. There are believers, yes, even people who claim to be Christians, pastors, churches. By and large, people are taking the shape of the world. And Peter says, you have a new life. You have a new identity. Live out your new calling. Now, I should mention some Christians have taken scriptures like this here to mean that we must simply seek to be different from the world for different sake. And so they've come up with a long list of ways, their own ways to be different. But Peter is not saying if the culture does one thing, they decide one thing, we should do another. If the culture wears one thing and they decide that's in style, then you should wear something else. You should try to be out of style. (laughs) That's not his point. He's not saying that you should be a good contrarian for Jesus and just disagree and conduct yourself differently from the world for different sake. Look, we don't need, if you're going to follow Jesus, you don't need to try and be weird. Because if you live like Jesus, if you talk like Jesus, if you act like Jesus, think like Jesus, if you prioritize in your life what Jesus did, guess what? You will be different enough from this world. Follow Christ. Don't try to be different. Follow Jesus. He will make you different. There's no need, I say this because there's no need to try to pretend that some 1950s style of Christianity is somehow superior to a a contemporary style in our culture. Peter's not concerned with style. He's talking about former lusts. He's talking about idolatry in the heart. 
desires to go back to Egypt. You know what I'm saying? He's saying you crave that former way of life. Can you think of ways that you live, habits, thought patterns, behaviors? Maybe we just say, it's my personality. It's who I am. Oh, that anger problem? That's just who you are? Maybe so. Is that who Christ has called you to be? Do we content ourselves with the old man? Or do we recognize God is calling us to put off those former lusts? Because he says, these were yours in your ignorance. 1 Thessalonians 4.5 says, there was a time when we did not know God. Ephesians 4.18 says that there was a time before we were redeemed from sin, slavery, and made alive, that we were darkened in our understanding. We were excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in us, because of the hardness of our hearts. But praise God, it's different now. It ought to be different because we now know Jesus. It, you know, in 1863, the first day of 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And the proclamation was that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforth shall be free. And it would be hard to imagine any slave that was set free, somehow longing to return back to his former slave master in chains. That's absurd. But it is conceivable, at least in theory, that if there was a slave who didn't know that he had been emancipated, that he had been declared free, he might go on serving his former master. You know, Peter is saying, you were ignorant at a time of Christ's liberating work on the cross, but you've been emancipated. You've been declared free. What are you doing with your freedom? Are you living there? Are you living in Canaan? Are you living back in Egypt? Are you trying to go back to the former things? Can you feel the force of his argument? Why would we want to go back to the things from which God has delivered us? If God's delivered you from sin, if God's given you the power and the grace in Jesus Christ to be free from pornography and free from lust and free from any form of sinful, enslaving, addictive power of sin, why would we want to content ourselves to just say, this is who I am. I'm content to live here. Brothers and sisters, if, if you find that you are trapped in some sin, don't be content to live there. But embrace a holy contentment. That's what God is calling you to. Bigger and better things. That's why the church is here. Get help. Talk to a brother and sister. I can tell you there is no saint of God that you will ever meet that has victory over any one of those sins you're struggling with that got that by their own right. God gave them that grace. And you can have that same grace because it's available in the same Christ, the same Savior, the same salvation. This isn't optional. Forsaking our former habits is not optional if we are to embrace our new calling in Christ. So to pursue your new calling, you must fix your hope where it belongs. You must forsake your former habits. But thirdly, you must follow after holiness. While we must put off our former habits, here's the other side of the same coin. We must follow after holiness. We must put on holiness. Verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Now at this point, I understand several questions arise regarding the pursuit of holiness. First of all, what does it mean to be holy? What does it mean? When you hear that word holy, what comes to your mind? You know, I, I know some people when they think of holiness, probably think of hypocrisy or a pharisaical form of religion. There's something pejorative about the term. If somebody calls you holy, oh, don't, don't get all holy on me now, they're probably not giving you a compliment, right? 
They're probably not flattering you. And holiness for others in the minds of evangelicals is associated strictly with some Pentecostal denomination. But my friends, in the Bible, the biblical concept of holiness is not a bad thing. It's not a joke. It's not a concept that belongs to any particular denomination of Christianity. The Bible teaches holiness as that aspect of God by which he is set apart from all else. And of course, there is a moral aspect to God's holiness whereby he is absolutely perfect. Being absolutely holy, absolutely perfect, he is absolutely set apart from all moral evil. It's who he is. Well, in what manner must we be holy? How holy must we be? Verse 15 says, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. I didn't say it. God's word says it. In all your behavior. God is commanding that you be set apart from sin in every aspect of your life. How you think, how you talk, how you interact with other people and all your relationships and the things you pursue and and what consumes your time and energy. I believe if we really got a hold of this fact, that God is demanding holiness in every aspect of our lives, we'd have, a, we'd have an awakening. We'd have an awakening on a personal level, and to the extent that caught on, man, we'd have awakening in churches all across this nation. And of course, we'd have people leaving churches all across this nation because many people would realize they, don't want, not, they want nothing to do with the holiness of God. But this is what we need, brothers and sisters. This is what God has called us to. And even scarier is the first part of verse 15. Look at this. But like... The Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also. The standard for holiness is none other than God himself. God is the standard. Jesus must have troubled everyone listening, this religious group of people, when he told them on the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not possibly enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't do it. He explained The holiest standard you've got isn't holy enough. And Jesus would go on to conclude, Therefore, be holy, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Boy, that's a high bar. That's a standard none of us can meet. As far as God's concerned, you're either holy like He is, or you're not holy at all. But why all the fuss over holiness? Any sinner may ask, why must we be holy? Isn't God forgiving? Isn't God loving? Well, our text gives us two reasons why we must be holy. First, we must be holy because of the character of the one who has called us. God is holy. That's the point of verse 15. God is holy. And humanity's greatest dilemma is this. God is holy and we are not. God is holy, we are not. And as Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. You want to enter into heaven? You want to enter into the joy of your Lord? You want a relationship with God eternally? You can't have that unless you are made holy. But verse 16 adds a second reason we must be holy because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Secondly, we must be holy because of the commandment of Scripture. Be holy. God commands it. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he commanded his people, be holy. By no less a miracle, we've been redeemed. And with no less forcefulness, God has commanded us, be holy. It's the same command from the same God. 
Now, along with the commandment to love God with all our being, this command to be holy in all our behavior, to be holy like God, this has to be the most troubling command in the Bible. Because how on earth are we ever going to do this? I hope that's the question you're asking. How can we be holy? While God calls us to be holy, nowhere does he say we can make ourselves holy. This is important to understand. We cannot make ourselves holy because we can't undo our sin. Nor can we change our sinful hearts. You need God to do this. According to the Bible, it is God alone who can make sinners holy. In Leviticus 20, verse 8, after commanding his people to be holy, God said, You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Praise God for that word. God is the one who sanctifies his people. And the Hebrew word there for sanctifies literally means make holy. The Lord makes us holy. We don't make ourselves holy. The Lord makes us holy. Well, how does he do that? The Bible gives you two words. Briefly, just two words that you should know. The first word you should know here is justification. And this is important because unless God declares you righteous, unless God declares you holy, you're not getting into his presence. This is worth your time. This is worth thinking about. Well, have you ever wondered, how is it that the Bible refers to God's people so many times as saints. That is a term that means holy ones. How does God call people holy when the Bible also plainly says all have sinned? We're sinners and we're holy? How does that work? Martin Luther used a Latin term to describe this dilemma, simul justus et peccator. It means at the same time just and sinner. We know we're sinners. We know we've sinned against God. But the Bible teaches that while we are sinners, we can be at the same time just. How is that? How can we be just? Well, God can legally declare us sinners just because he himself has fulfilled the law and suffered the penalty due to our sins. That's the only way any sinner can ever or will ever stand before God righteous, holy. It is on account of Jesus' holy life and atoning death. Have you been justified? What have you done about that? You want to stand before the judge of all the earth? You will. Do you want to stand before him justified? The only way you can is through faith in Christ. Romans 3.24 says we are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So to restore fellowship with sinners, this holy God justifies sinners. But a second word you should know that has to do with God making sinners holy is sanctification sanctification. And I don't think evangelicals emphasize this one enough today. We all like, sure, the idea that at a point in time we can be born again, we can be headed for destruction and in a moment of time, in an instant, because of Jesus' life and death for us, we can be on our way to heaven. We can be forgiven. Praise God. Hey, that's great. I don't want to de-emphasize that, but can I say this? We ought to never forget. That's not the end of the story. There's more to salvation than getting out of hell or getting into heaven. That's just the beginning. Salvation in Christianity in general is not about escaping hell or getting into heaven. It's about being made holy. It's about being transformed, restored from the sinners we are into the likeness of God himself. True salvation isn't cheap. It costs God everything. It's about making us Holy. And so that's what sanctification is. It's God's plan to take us 
and make us like himself. To make us like Christ. Is that happening in your life? God wants to make you as holy as he is. And that's how much he loves you. Now can you see why he wants you to fix your hope completely on the coming of Christ? And to forsake former lusts? You can't possibly follow after holiness without doing those things. But he's given you a new calling. He loves you too much just to make you happy. Oh, so many churches, so many people about being happy. Look, God doesn't reign in heaven for your happiness. He's God. Everything revolves around him. He came not to make you happy, but to make you holy. And if you're holy, guess what? You will be happy. You'll have the true joy of the Lord. God came to redeem us, to restore us to be exactly what he created us to be. And nothing less. That's our God. He's given you new life. And with that new life, he's given you a new calling. A new life means a new calling. Athletes, soldiers, doctors, philanthropists, politicians, you name it, researchers, whatever. People all around the world give their life to whatever it is they perceive as their calling. I have a calling in life. Do you have a calling in life? What is your calling? If God has redeemed you from destruction, if he's delivered you from this debt you owe that you could never pay, if he's given you this eternal life, laid up eternal inheritance for you in heaven and all that to be revealed at Christ's return, man, you've got new life. Do you have a new calling? Oh yeah. You've got a new calling. And however the Spirit of God may be convicting you, may be bringing to your mind habits of your former lusts, Maybe he's, he's convicting you about your lack, just, just apathy, your lack of concern for pursuing sanctification, for being made more like Jesus. Don't just look at a time you walked down the aisle or were baptized or made a decision or whatever. Do you see in your life you are being made holy like Jesus? We need to respond to God. If you're listening, you'd say, Pastor, I, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not sure I've ever been justified. I don't know. I don't know if I would stand before God righteous. I don't know that I'm, I'm really being sanctified. I would encourage you to see me, see another brother or sister here before you leave. You don't have to live with doubt. You don't have to live with fear. That's why God came. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest news ever. We want you to understand and believe that. Having said, let's close with a word of prayer.